Welcome to Astronomy Daily for another episode. It's the 28th of August 2023 and we'll get right into it with another good batch of stories including where are the moon rocks? <laughs> what are contrails? And we ask who is sending a toy to the moon? Stay tuned. With your host, Steve Dunkley. Righto, righto, Hallie. What's all this silliness about sending a toy to the moon? You'll have to wait for the punchline on that one, Steve. Oh, okay, keeping me in suspense. So what else is on the menu then? Japan is retiring one of its workhorse rockets, but it's still got a few missions to go. And you did some homework for someone. Yes, I found a little story about man-made clouds just to uh, clear the air. Sounds cute. And what else have you got in store for us? Well, I must have rocks in my head. It's all about asteroids and rocks for me today. Well, mostly. Mostly? Well, that's interesting. Does NASA know about all the asteroids? Well, Hallie, the quick answer is no. The good news, though, is that we know where most of the really big asteroids are that get closest to Earth, and NASA has found more than 90% of those big asteroids. However, there are a lot of small pieces still out there that we haven't found, and that's uh, where the planetary defence experts come in. This is all according to NASA asteroid expert Dr Amy Mainzer. It's really challenging to find asteroids and comets because even though some of them are as big as mountains, space, as author Douglas Adams so eloquently put it, is really big and these rocks can be really far away. In fact, we actually do want to find them when they're really far away from the Earth so that if necessary, we have lots of time to take action if we ever find one that's really actually headed in our direction. I don't want to think about that. It's probably not really worth worrying about. Asteroids are more of a source of fascination because they're relics from the birth of our solar system and it's incredibly unlikely that a significant asteroid impact would ever occur in our lifetimes. Regardless, our planetary defence experts monitor the skies to look for near-Earth asteroids and comets, and we do hear about that in the news, and make sure that the Earth and asteroids never get too close for comfort. Dr Mainzer said NASA knows what it has to do to find the remaining unknown asteroids and is on the job a part of an ongoing mission of planetary defence. How about that? I feel safer already. Oh, I'm sure you do, Hallie. Now how about some short takes? No problem. Here we go. The Mitsubishi Heavy Industries HIA launch vehicle, as its career is being wound down in favour of the H3, is preparing to fly the smart lander for investigating moon, SLIM, robotic lunar lander and the X-ray imaging and spectroscopy mission X-ray telescope on its 47th flight. After this flight, the second of 2023 for the HIA, the HIA will have three flights left before retirement. The H-2 family has been Japan's workhorse launch vehicle for nearly 30 years. The HIIA vehicle F-47 was scheduled to launch from the LAOY-1 launch pad at Tanigashima Space Center, Japan, on Monday, August 28, at 026 Universal Time Coordinated. However, it was scrubbed due to weather. The launch window for this mission lasts until September 15. The Zrism X-ray Observatory is to be placed into a 550-kilometer circular low-Earth orbit inclined 31 degrees to the equator. The slim lunar lander will also be placed in the same orbit but will use its own engines to get to the moon. 
This flight's main payload is the SRISM. The observatory is a replacement mission started in 2016 after the failure of the Hitomi X-ray Observatory weeks after reaching orbit. X-ray astronomy has only been performed within the last 60 years, as X-rays from deep space are attenuated by the Earth's atmosphere. Hitomi's failure could have left the scientific community without an orbiting X-ray observatory for a long period of time from the early 2020s to the late 2030s. JAXA began the ZRISM project in June 2016, three months after Hitomi's failure. NASA, ESA, and major universities on three continents are collaborating on the project. X-rays are generated by objects like exploding stars, black holes, radio galaxies, pulsars, and other high-energy phenomena. ZRISM's science objectives are to study clusters of galaxies, how the structure of the universe evolves, how matter spreads through interstellar space, how energy is transported through the universe, and how matter behaves under strong gravitational and magnetic fields that cannot be created on Earth. To accomplish these objectives, ZRISM is equipped with two instruments, both attached to a dedicated X-ray mirror assembly. The resolve spectrometer is designed to make highly detailed measurements of an X-ray emitting object's temperature and composition, and can make detailed Doppler measurements to determine how objects in the universe move. The Stand X-ray imager, like Resolve, is designed to observe soft X-rays. Stand has a field of view that can capture the full moon, and can image larger celestial objects. On the heels of the successful Chandrayaan A3 landing, Japan will seek to join the United States, the Soviet Union, China, and India in the club of nations that have landed probes successfully on the moon. The Slim Lander will attempt to succeed where earlier Japanese landing attempts with the Hakutoar and Omotenashi missions failed. A small probe known as the Lunar Exploration Vehicle 1 is to separate from Slim just before landing and image the site. SLIM is also carrying the ball-shaped Soriku mini-rover, also known as Lunar Exploration Vehicle 2, that was designed by Tomi, the Japanese toymaker who invented the Transformers toys. Oh, it's made by the same people that make the Transformers. Obviously more than meets the eye. Quite so. Where are the moon rocks? Where are the moon rocks from the Apollo missions kept? When they're not being studied by institutions or enjoyed by museum-goers, NASA has a specialized lunar sample curation laboratory at NASA's Johnson Space Center to store and keep these otherworldly samples safe. Studying these samples helps us learn more about the origin of not only our moon, but our planet. Former Deputy Apollo Sample Curator Dr. Julianne Gross explains more about lunar sample curation. The rocks are stored in the Lunar Curation Facility. She is very excited that the Artemis mission is going to bring back new lunar samples to examine. This time from the South Polar region. The Lunar Curation Facility is a clean room facility which means that the air gets filtered and personnel have to wear special protective suits. The rocks are stored in cabinets filled with nitrogen to keep them safe from water and the Earth's atmosphere and germs which may affect them. Studying the moon rocks will help explorers to know what kinds of tools are needed in order to be more effective in future missions. And that's it from me today. Back to you, Steve. Oh, thank you very much, Hallie, for those stories. That first one was quite a monster story, actually. It was a really big one from the uh, Japanese uh, space 
agency JAXA. They're doing some mighty stuff, and they are retiring that uh, that workhorse rocket of theirs, uh, but not until it's done a couple more uh, missions for them and uh, those uh, important things that are going up um, very shortly. The slim and the uh, unpronounceable um, mission, which I have to look up now. You'll have to forgive me because I've got to go back through my notes. Um, yes, it's pronounced... Um, Zrism, which is X-R-I-S-M, Zrism. I think Hallie had a bit of uh, trouble pronouncing that one as much as I did. So, you know, uh, as an Australian, I have a lot of trouble with some of the pronunciations. But um, I'm glad to see Hallie struggled as much as I did. Sorry, Hallie, but uh, that's the way it goes. Uh, You might be learning or I might be rubbing off on you. Uh, You never know. But anyway. uh, And Hallie, did I tell you that I actually saw some moon rocks once? No, you didn't, Steve. Is this a joke or a real story? Oh, no, I promise you, Hallie, this is a, um, an a- absolutely true story. I was on holidays with my parents uh, in our nation's capital, which is Canberra. A lot of uh, folks in the Northern Hemisphere tend to think that it's Sydney or Melbourne. It's actually Canberra. We were in Canberra and we were visiting the Snowy Mountains, which was uh, just a little uh, way out of Canberra. We were going to do some skiing and tobogganing and so on. We went to the Snowy Mountains and my parents took us to see the Moonrock Exhibition, which was uh, visited in Canberra at that time. It was freezing cold. And I remember seeing this rock under a dome of glass. Uh, It was only about as big as a football. Uh, The the dome of glass was as big as a football. The rock itself was only as big as a golf ball. And it was mounted like a large gem rotating slowly in a small clamp. And I knew it was special at the time, but it was a rock. And I can just recall the strangest feeling. And it was a, it had greenish colours in it and uh, it was a rock. It does seem strange to treat a rock so reverently. Yes, at the time I thought it was amazing. I can't remember how old I was. I was only young. I might have been around 10 or 11. But I did think it was amazing, this thing from another world. That's a good way of putting it. Yes, I guess it's all about the perspective. A moon rock and you saw it with your own eyes. And I guess it's important because seeing it got me interested in astronomy and space and science, rockets, astronauts, and it opened up my imagination to those, you know, possibilities. That is important. You're listening to Astronomy Daily, the podcast with Steve Dunkley. Thanks for sticking with us. And here's a quick reminder to uh, register at bytes.com. That's B-I-T-E-S-Z.com and spacenuts.com. You can register there to receive the Astronomy Daily Newsletter. That'll give you the top stories in astronomy of the day. So pop on over to those addresses and register for the newsletter. I've not been very... um, regular in reminding our listeners of that particular thing so yes jump on that get your newsletter and you'll be up to date with all the news that's new in astronomy from around the world now great news uh, news of the world is the spacex crew 7 dragon capsule has docked uh, successfully at the space station uh, in iss and uh, with a four-person replacement team crew 7 is replacing crew 6 and the crew uh, dragon capsule endurance docked at the international space station at 916 a uh, am edt uh, where it parked itself at a space facing port 
uh, on the outpost's uh, US built Harmony module after flying a wide loop around the uh, orbital outpost. Now, that would have been fantastic to get a great view of the station. Dragon and the station were soaring 261 miles above Australia at the time. Hey, welcome to my neighborhood, guys. Thank you so much, Crew 7. Commander Jasmine uh, Mobelli of NASA radioed SpaceX mission control after successfully docking. I have to keep reminding myself that this is not a dream. I'm telling you, if you were anywhere near Australia, is you're living the dream. You're living the dream. And in a quick answer to a conversation I had on Facebook recently, let's have a look at contrails. Contrails are created by jet engines cruising at altitude. Is it a cause for worry? Well, not in the way that people might think. If you live under a popular plane route, then you're probably a no stranger to long, thin clouds in the sky. These are contrails emitted by aeroplanes. Uh, contrails or condensation trails are essentially human-made clouds. They are trails of condensed water vapour created by jet engines, according to the National Weather Service. Now, who's going to argue with them? We most commonly see them behind planes cruising at altitude, but they can also be emitted by rockets. Contrails are created when the hot water vapour emitted by a jet engine after combustion cools and condenses in the Earth's atmosphere, according to the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. The atmosphere's temperature and humidity must be in just the right place for condensation to occur. The air must be cold with a little bit of humidity. Contrails most commonly form at the airplane's cruising altitude between about 32,000 feet and 42,000 feet in the upper uh, troposphere. Uh, per the Rocky Mountains Institute, RMI, because that's where these content uh, conditions are found because the atmosphere is ever-changing, conditions might not be right for contrail formation at this altitude, which is why not all aeroplanes create contrails during every flight. Generally speaking, contrails are neither good nor bad. They simply are cloud created by jet engines under certain atmospheric conditions. That said, research suggests that contrails contribute to atmospheric warming and cooling according to RMI, and the warming in particular is a problem for the planet. Contrails that form at night or last into the nighttime are the main contributors for atmospheric warming, uh, according to RMI. Earth undergoes radiative cooling at night. Heat radiates from the surface into space, but clouds like contrails can, in fact, trap that heat. Contrail is a joining of two words, condensation and trail. All jet engines can potentially produce contrails, but specific atmospheric conditions are required for that to happen. And no... Contrails are not directly dangerous to humans. There is a conspiracy theory that governments use aircraft to disperse toxic chemicals into the atmosphere for a variety of nefarious reasons, creating chemical trails or chemtrails that look similar to contrails. However, there is no evidence to support this scenario. There is no basis to the conspiracy and scientists do not consider this at all credible. Stephen Barrett, the H.N. Slater Professor of Aeronautics and Astronautics at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and Director of the MIT Laboratory for Aviation Environment, told Space.com. 
For more definitive information about the factual side of contrails, you can read David Keith's information on the subject. Now, Keith is a professor of applied physics at Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences and a professor of public policy at Harvard Kennedy School. And he provides a detailed debunking of the theory on his research group's website. Keith studied climate science and technology as well as public policy of solar geoengineering. I hope that cleared the air. And just like that, we've come to the close of yet another episode. Thanks for staying with us. I hope you'll join us next time on Astronomy Daily. Fridays with Tim Gibbs, Mondays with yours truly, Steve Dunkley. And as always, a reminder that you can find all the back episodes of Astronomy Daily and our parent podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson at bytes.com. That's B-I-T-E-S-Z or Z.com and also spacenuts.com. And one more thing, don't forget that Astronomy Daily newsletter, which is a roundup of all of the top stories in astronomy every day. Register at the same address, spacestarts and bytes.com. And as they say, see you in the funny pages. I'm your host, Steve Dunkley. Catch you next time on Astronomy Daily. Bye. Astronomy Daily, the podcast. With your host, Steve Dunkley.